Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're glad to have you here with us this morning. We've been in a relationship series, looking at what God's Word has to say about our relationships, and we've been talking about, you know, stopping this pretending that's so easy to do. This whole series has really kind of come out of one verse in Romans chapter 12. In Romans 12, verse 9, it talks to us about uh, being genuine in our love. And the text actually says, stop pretending with our love, but actually act love out, demonstrate it day in and day out in our relationships. And so that's what we've been talking about. We've been talking about what it looks like to stop pretending and start actually loving one another. Now, here's the thing. Um, There are some relationships and some things that happen in relationships that make loving one another very, very, very difficult. Today's talk, uh, if, if, if this is your first time here or if you didn't know about this, today's talk is going to be very heavy. In fact, today we're going to talk about some of the things that make relationships in our world So very difficult. Today we're going to talk about the reality of abuse. Here's the thing. Abuse is a very real problem in our world. I guarantee it's a very real problem in this world and in this room. I'll never forget the day that a woman named Jackie walked into my office in Kansas City. She walked in, I could see all over her face that there was something very, very wrong. I didn't know her very well. They were fairly new in our church there, and as she walked in, I could tell that she was either about to tell me something that was, you know, just devastating to her, something that she'd done, or something that had been done. And she started to tell me the story of how she met her husband, how they dated, how things were going so well, how they got engaged. And how things began to turn. She told me the story that might be a story that sounds familiar to some of you. A story that involved a time where he started to uh, begin to want to control her and control what she did and where she went. And it went from kind of just an emotional control to then eventually a verbal control, then eventually economic control where she had no access to money. And then finally, it, it was culminating in physical control. It's not a new story. It's actually a whole lot more common than we probably realize, and that's one of the tools that people use oftentimes. Keep it quiet, hush, don't talk, it's shameful. The reality is, and I wonder if you know, did did you know how prominent this really is? Did you know that one in four women, 25%, one in four women experience violence at the hands of an intimate partner? We had roughly 220 adults here last, last week between our two services. Let's assume that half of them were women. That's 110. That tells me that there were nearly 30 people in our services last week who have experienced, 30 women in our services last week, if the numbers hold true here, who have experienced some form of violence at the hands of a partner. 
Women aren't the only ones. One in seven men have experienced violence at the hands of, a, of an intimate partner. That, that tells me that we're somewhere around 15 men. If there were 110 men here, you know, somewhere around 15 men who've experienced something like this. And adults aren't the only ones. I mean, teens as well. One in five teen girls report that at, at the threat of a breakup or when they're breaking up, their boyfriend threatens self-harm or to harm them. This is a very real issue. The numbers don't stop there. Did you know that one in four women, one in four women have uh, been sexually assaulted? Again, you, you do the math in this room One in six men have experienced the same thing. And one in ten high school students, one in ten high school students have experienced physical violence from a dating partner in the past year. Every Sunday uh, between the hours of four and six, we have a youth group that, that meets here and there's somewhere between 20 and 30 teens who are here, which tells me in a room like that, there's two to three in that room alone. This is a real issue. And it's an issue that I believe firmly we need to talk about because it thrives in the dark. And something needs to change. Let me give you a definition for abuse. It's something that we'll reference throughout the morning here. Abuse treats someone as if he or she were an object to control and use rather than a person to love and value. Notice what's not in there. What's not in there is how the person behaves or how the person, you know, dressed or how the person did X, Y, or Z. The only issue is that someone decided that the person is an object that they need to be able to control and use, rather than be a person to be valued and cared for. So here's what I want to do today. I want to walk through three questions that really outline some of the goals that I think Scripture gives to us and that I want us to look at here today. Here here are the three questions that I want to walk through. They kind of outline the three goals. Goal number one is I want to answer where does abuse come from? This This is an important question to wrestle with. Question number two is what is God's heart towards abuse? And then number three, what should we do or how should we respond. So let's start with the first one. Where does abuse come from? Well, here's the interesting thing. The Bible shows us the very first time abuse shows up, and it shows us where it comes from. If you go to the very beginning of the Bible, the the opening words of all of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning. And here's the thing, when you go to the opening words of the Bible, when you go to the opening chapters of the Bible, in the beginning, you don't find abuse. It wasn't like that. Let let me show you what it was like. 
when everything got started. Genesis 1 and verse 26, God is having a conversation. The Bible describes God as being a, a, a triune God. That's a weird word, but it means three distinct persons within one. And so there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And they're talking to one another, and they're having this conversation. And God says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. God was doing something in making human beings. We are made in some way like him. And then he goes on in verse 27, and it says this, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Both men and women are created in the image of God. Why does it mention in the image of God three times? In the beginning, God is saying, listen, human beings were meant to be a reflection of him. And they have value like him. And dignity just like him. And then the, the capstone of all of it is at the end of creation, God looked over everything. God had spoken everything that exists into existence. That's what Genesis 1 tells us. It tells us he spoke the world into existence, the sun, the moon, the stars. He spoke, he spoke all of creation, trees, plants, animals, everything. And the capstone of all of it was, was mankind. And then at the end of it, in verse 27, he says this. God looked over all that he had made and he saw that it was very good. Which means God was looking at his creation, and there was nothing wrong with it. It was in untested perfection. There was no evil. There was nothing broken. There was nothing that was ash and destruction destroyed. Everything was good. That seems very different than the statistics that I just gave a few minutes ago. So what happened? Because, see, if you move from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 4, you find very quickly... The world changed. In Genesis chapter 4, we, we hear about the first family. You start with Adam and Eve, and then eventually Adam and Eve have children. They had two children. Their, their, their boys' names were Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel were probably, you know, just like normal brothers. But eventually this thing came in between them where they both made sacrifices or worshipped the Lord and made an offering to the Lord. And one was accepted and one wasn't because of the heart behind it. And, and one had obeyed and one hadn't. And so the one who, who didn't obey, he calls his other brother and, and he says, hey, come with me. Look, it's in Genesis 4 verse 8. It says, one day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother. This is, this is the first example of abuse. This is the first example of assault. It gets even worse. He attacked his brother, Abel, and he killed him. This is the first example of murder. Now, how, how did we go from Genesis 1, 27, God saw everything, and it was good, and they're, you know, they're walking and talking with God, and things are going well. Genesis 1 is creation. Genesis 2 gives us more expansion on the creation narrative. It's explaining to us how God did all of this and, and what he did. And then you just go one chapter over, and in Genesis 4, you're finding assault, abuse. Murder. Well, here's the reality. Genesis 3 stands between creation and Cain. And guess what's in Genesis 3? 
fall or sin. Sin. Sin entered into the world. Adam and Eve rebelled, sinned against God, and then from generation to generation, person to person, passed down to every human being, now there is a sin nature, which means, I'm not saying you're as sinful as you could be, I'm just saying I, I, I do things that I know I shouldn't, and I want things that I know that I shouldn't, and I, I don't do the things that I know that I should. You want to know how I know every person has it? Ever raised a toddler? Yeah. How does a toddler, how does a toddler who, who has so little life experience, and when you ask him to do something, no, no, where, where did that come from? See, now deep inside of our hearts, and you don't, you don't have to believe what I believe about Jesus, you don't have to believe what we're going to talk about for the rest of the thing, but, but, but you know that deep down inside there's something broken inside of every single one of us. That's where abuse comes from. Something broken inside of me, where when somebody doesn't give me what I want, it's easy to stop treating them like a person of value and start treating them like an object to be controlled. That's abuse. It has many forms, physical, emotional, sexual, economic. I mean, we could, we could go on. And the reality is, many of us have been touched by it. Now what? That, that's where the second question comes in. Question number two, what is God's heart towards abuse? And I want to touch on two parts to this, really, over the course of the rest of our time. What is, what is God's heart towards a person who's been abused, and what is God's heart towards a person who has done the abuse or, or been an abuser? The Bible is filled with story after story of God's interactions with people who have been in disadvantaged situations and experienced exp abuse. One of the most prominent stories I, I, I can think of is found in the Old Testament. It's in the second book of the Bible. It's in the book of Exodus. And it's the story of, of one family kind of growing, 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 getting bigger and bigger, all the while living in the nation of Egypt. It's the family of Abraham, and eventually it becomes known as the nation of Israel. And Israel lived in Egypt as foreigners for a long time, and eventually one of the rulers there decided they didn't really like the Israelites anymore, and so they decided to put their thumb down and force them into slavery, to treat them as objects to be controlled to get what they wanted rather than people to be valued and cared for. So they started abusing them, and this went on for a long time, culminating in forcing mothers to have their babies killed. This is a reality. What's God's response? In Genesis chapter 4, God begins doing something and he begins working through a man named Moses. 
In Genesis 4, God has a conversation with Moses. This is the account, maybe you've heard of it before, where Moses is standing in front of a burning bush, a bush that's on fire but not being consumed. And God is speaking to Moses, and he says this in Genesis, excuse me, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7 and 8. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. And yes, I am aware of their suffering. A couple of things. Number one, when it comes to abuse, God sees it. That should bring hope to a victim. God's God's not so far away that he doesn't see it. It should also cause abusers to go... Not only that, he hears their cries. Not only that, he is very aware. So what does he do? Actually, the verse finishes it out. It says this, so I have come down. The end of verse 8 says, so I have come down to rescue them. See, the scripture is full of God's care and intervention for the abused. But you know what? There's one person that evidences this the most. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. See, when Jesus shows up on the scene, he grew up in a a little town that would be similar to towns we have around here. Towns like Little Meadows or, or towns like, you know, Halstead or Montrose or towns like Hancock that we talked about earlier. They're, they're a little bit kind of out of the way and maybe not crazily, not, not really, really well known. And you probably wouldn't have expected like a, a first-rate rabbi or prophet to come out of that town. But that's what Jesus did. And he started traveling and revealing to people who God was. Teaching them who God was. Showing them in living color that God saw, heard, cared, and had come to do something. And then he went back home. He didn't receive a great, you know, warm welcome when he got home. But when he got there... He revealed to them what God wanted him to do. This is what he did. In Luke chapter 4, we read this. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath. This is, if you were a a Jewish person, this is what you would do. On the Sabbath, everybody, on, on, on Shabbat, everybody would go and, and you would be in the synagogue and you would have a time of teaching and a time of prayer and a time of worship. Their teaching would look a little different than ours. They'd have a seat. It's called the seat of Moses. The, 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 the rabbi who was teaching would take a scroll and would read, but he would sit down to teach and read and everyone else would stand up. Jesus did something different. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read from the scriptures. He was trying to get their attention. He's handed a scroll. He's handed the scroll of Isaiah. I just imagine Jesus just knowing. I mean, he just knows it 
inside and out. I mean, he wrote it, (laughs) inspired it. And as he opens it up, the text tells us he opens to a particular passage in Isaiah. Here's what it says. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where this was written. And he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he's anointed me to do some things. Let me show you what Jesus came to do. He sent me to bring good news to the poor. People who are down and out and feel like they don't have any hope. And there's nothing for them to cling to. And they can't even take care of their, they they don't have the ability to take care of their basic needs. He's saying, there's good news. I'm coming to tell you there's good news. Who else? What else? He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, people who are in bondage and stuck will be released. Third, the blind will see, and finally, the oppressed will be set free. What's going on? Jesus is saying, I'm coming to set people free. And then he ends it by saying this, and that the time of the Lord's favor, that's a word that means his, his, his grace, his, his love, the time of his favor has come. A couple of things. Jesus came to set people who've been oppressed free, people who've been abused free, and Jesus came to set captives, people who've been held captive by their guilt and shame, set them free too. What's going on here? This is God's heart. This is God's heart for the abused. This is God's heart for the oppressed. This is actually God's heart for all people, but the reality is that God's heart for the oppressed is clear. He wants them to be free. That is what he has come to do. He wants them to be free. Man. Now, this isn't the only place that Jesus talks about it. In fact, a little bit later in his ministry, he speaks into what a lot of people feel when when abuse has occurred. Whether you've been the victim of abuse or not, you, you've surely heard people's stories and you've probably heard that, that oftentimes if, if a person has experienced some form of abuse, they begin to feel like, well, you know what, it's my fault. Well, you know, I asked for it. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have worn this. I shouldn't have. And the reality is that is not true. Jesus addresses that. In Mark chapter 7, in talking about where the wickedness that is in our world comes from, Jesus makes it plain and explicit what Genesis 3 kind of you know, puts out there. But Jesus just makes it clear. In verse 20, he says, It is what comes from inside that defiles you. Okay? What is he talking about? Verse 21, For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder. Verse 22, adultery, greed, wickedness, 
deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things come from within. They are what defile you. What is he saying? When something wicked occurs, it comes from within our hearts. Here's the thing. If you've been abused, that's not your fault. That's what Jesus is saying. Do you, you understand? He's saying that didn't, that didn't come because of something you did. That didn't come because of something you said. It didn't come because of a situation you put yourself. It came because something wicked was happening in a person's heart. You need to hear the heart of God over you. You're seen. You're heard. You're known. And God has come down. He sent Jesus to set you free. So what do we do? What do we do with all of our guilt and shame? Because there, you know, there's, there's, there's shame when things have been done to us or said about us. What do we do? We fight back. There's a couple of principles that I want you to, to know. These are good principles just for life. Number one, don't blame others for what you do. Don't, don't blame somebody else. Don't point a finger when you've done something, how, how easy is it to do this as a parent where you explode all over your kids? You're like, ah, oh, I wouldn't have done that, but you, if you would just obey the first time, I wouldn't have to. No. No. Don't blame others for what you do. And I, I get it. I, I'm not talking to you as if I'm any different. We need to own our stuff. But on the flip side, when you've been the victim, don't blame yourself for what others do. Don't listen to the lie of the enemy who wants you to suffer in shame and silence. Silence is the tool of the enemy. He wants you Stuck. So, where does abuse come from? It comes from our hearts. What is God's heart? <laughs> it's full of grace and mercy. You're seen, you're heard, you're known, and he has come to do something finally. How should we respond? If, if our love is going to be genuine... If we are really going to be people who follow in the footsteps of Christ, what should we do? I want to share with you kind of four requirements for relationships with a subtitle of how to not be an abuser. And I know that sounds tough, but the reality is it happens so regularly we need to know how to be different. There's a story in the Old Testament of a man who, who had a heart for God. And yet, when he didn't guard his heart, he abused a woman and her family. The story is about a man named David. He was the king of Israel. 
about 3,000 years ago. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we find his story and out of it come some actions that if he had taken these actions, everything would have been different. I I, want to point them out to you. In verse 1, it says this, in the spring of the year when kings normally, look at this, normally go out to war, like the kings go with the armies, they would go out in the spring to defend their borders. In the time when the kings would normally go to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite armies to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed home. David decided to serve himself. David should have been out with his men. How how often is it that like little decisions like this where we know, oh, I probably should do this, but when we don't do it, it leads us to something else? How often is it that like little decisions along the way where we just we just kind of please ourselves? They lead us to something well beyond where we ever wanted to be. That's the case with David. And everything that's about to show up in his story, even if you don't know what his story is, you're, you're about to hear it, everything that's about to show up in his story would have been different if he had chosen to serve others. This is what we need to do in our relationships. We must serve others. Listen, if you're dating here today, I can tell you how to safeguard your marriage. Not marriage, sorry. I can tell you how to safeguard your relationship. Start serving each other and putting one another First, if you're married here today, I can tell you how to safeguard your marriage. Start serving one another and put one another first. If you have a friendship or something in the family or whatever, that what you're going to have to do is serve. Even Jesus, the king of the universe, came not to be served but to, you got it, serve. We must serve others. Now David's story goes on. In verse 2, we find out what he was doing while his army was out. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest. Boy, that sounds nice. The army's out fighting your battles. You're at home on your couch. Cool, dude. After his midday rest, David got out of bed. <laughs> Why do I just have a picture of a teenager like getting out of bed at like two and like, oh, I'm so tired, you know? He gets out of bed. He goes up on the roof of the palace. This is a normal thing in the Middle East. I mean, even today, right? Like all, all of, all, a lot of the homes have, you know, like porticos on the top of the buildings. Why? So you can go up there and be cool in the evening, okay? He goes and walking on the roof of the palace, and as he looks out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to tell you something. Our English language does not have a good word to translate the Hebrew word here. It's not that he noticed her, okay? It's that he noticed her. You, you get the difference? 
It's not that he saw her and he goes, oh, hey, there's a woman who's made in the image of God, and you know what? I should respect her. No. He saw her as an object to be controlled for his own use. He did not value her. No. I mean, he might have valued her, but he didn't value her and put her first. And if we are going to be a people who stop pretending and we start having meaningful relationships that are filled with with all of the goodness that God originally designed in the garden, if we're going to flourish, then we must be a people who value one another. And I'm not just talking about like value you for what you can give me. I'm talking about value them like God values them and value them like you would value God if you were in his presence. You would be like, whoa! There would be no question about you getting what you want. There would be... You're incredible. I'm not saying we worship people. Don't. That's not what I'm saying. But we worship the God who made people and he's made us in his image. We must value others. The story gets worse from there. In verse 3, we read this. He sent someone to find out who she was. Because that's what you do when you're a king. You send someone. You don't do it yourself. I mean, he's already been sending people, sending the army to fight his battles. Why not just send somebody to find out who she is? Cool. So he sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, she's Bathsheba. Oh, you know Bathsheba. She's the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Oh, by the way, Uriah is one of your mighty men. David had a group of mighty men who whenever David had a problem or a battle to be fought, he had a small group of people who were like the best of the best. And they went for him. And Uriah was one of them. This is his wife. So what does he do? Verse 4. And David sent. He did it again. Sent messengers to get her. A king doesn't ask, a king tells. The text doesn't tell us that Bathsheba objected. I want to be really clear she didn't have a choice. You understand this? She didn't have a choice. Here's a man with all the power, here's a woman. With no power. There's an imbalance. And rather than using his power to serve and, Im- and value her, he used his power to control and get what he wanted. She came to the, pla- to the palace. And he slept with her. And then he dismissed her. Verse 5. Later when Bathsheba 
discovered that she was pregnant. She sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. I can't imagine. I, I, I can, I guess, but I, uh, th- what an incredibly scary situation. You want to talk about being vulnerable? <laughs> Pregnancy is being vulnerable, for, first and foremost. I, 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 I mean, obviously, I don't know it firsthand, but I, I watch what happens. It's being vulnerable. Now you're pregnant with with somebody's baby who's not your husband, and, and there was probably a rape or something going on here. I don't, I don't know what is going on, but, but now you got to tell the guy, and he has all the power in the land, and oh, by the way, he's your husband's boss, and your husband's away. I mean, wow. And David, rather than empowering this woman, And lifting her up and valuing her, he empowers himself to find a way out of it. And executes her husband. Covers it up. We may not go to that extreme. There are people who do. But boy, we oftentimes like to use things to our own advantage, don't we? We like to lift ourselves up and empower ourselves rather than empowering other people. Listen, if our relationships are going to be godly, we must empower others. Help somebody up. Help them. Give them a hand up. I'm not talking about a hand out. I'm talking about a hand up. We don't take advantage of other people. I, I don't care if we're talking about business or, or, or whatever. It is. We're, we don't take advantage. Because people are made in the image of God. In the image of God, he made them. Male and female, he made them in the image of God. We empower people. Finally, we must accept accountability. See, here's what happens in David's story. David gives the orders, and Uriah the Hittite is murdered effectively. David told his men to surge forward in a battle, put Uriah in a place where um, if everybody pulled back, he was going to die in battle, and, and he did. And then David graciously took in his wife, Nah. He didn't tell anybody. Bathsheba didn't tell anybody. But you know what's interesting? Somebody knew. His name was Nathan. Nathan came to the king. You want to talk about a scary position? (laughs) Nathan came to the king. Nathan was a prophet of God, and he came to the king, and he told him a story. He said, David, I've got a story for you. It's a story about a rich man, a man who had all kinds of land and all kinds of livestock. He had Tons and tons of, uh, of, of sheep, and, and he had a neighbor, and this neighbor was not a rich man. He was a poor man, but he had one sheep, and he loved that sheep, and he cared for that sheep, took care of it like it was his child, and the, the sheep slept in the house with him. He loved this sheep, and one day the rich man had people coming over who was throwing a big party, and he thought, ah, I better feed him something. So he decided to go and get the one little lamb that belonged to the neighbor, David flew off the handle in a rage. He said, 
That man deserves to pay. He'll repay fourfold. And Nathan looked him in the face and he said this, you are the man. David fell flat on his face. This is where we get Psalm 51, where David confesses. You want to know the pathway forward if you have abused someone? Fall on your face and say, I am the man, I am the woman. Purge me, cleanse me, please. Own it, take accountability, stop hiding. Things bad for you grow in the dark. And if you've been abused, and I beg with you, I plead with you, please speak. Speak. It feels like if we speak our guilt and shame... Everybody will see it. But I'm telling you, when it comes out into the light, it loses its power. That's what happens. See, things hold power over us when they're on the inside. Whether it's things we've done or things that have been done to us, they hold power over us. I read years ago, the testimony of a Holocaust victim named Ellie Wiesel. Ellie talked about the story of what occurred, the abuse, the atrocities that occurred within the concentration camps. And one of the things that was said was this. You've got to see it. I swore never to be silent whenever and wherever human beings endure suffering and humiliation. We must take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. Speak. For our love to be genuine, if we see someone being mistreated, we must speak. For our love to be genuine, if we are being the abuser, we must repent. Oh, there is hope for forgiveness. It may not remove the consequences. Don't hear me wrong. There are natural and very right consequences for abuse. But do not miss that Jesus came to set the captives free. Maybe not free on this earth, but free with him. It must be spoken. When Jackie walked into my office, I didn't know what I was about to hear. And I certainly didn't know what to say. But I sat and I listened. And I wept and I cried. And I wish I could tell you that I know that everything is fixed. I know that Jackie has taken good steps. I'm yet to see her husband do it. But here's what I know. There is a God who sees. 
There is a God who hears. And there's a God who knows. And he loves her very much. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that you love us in spite of us. Thank you for your son. I have hope because of him. I don't have hope because of religion or, or, or man. I have hope because of Jesus. That he's paid, paid it all. To pick up and carry away, to pick up and carry away sin and guilt and shame. God, help us to turn to him and to believe him. And please give us hope. Pray in Jesus' name.